Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave you in your midst, a people humbly, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth any deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before the eyes, said the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we uh, begin the sermon, uh, as the kids are dis- being dismissed, just as a way of precursor or introduction, I just want to say that I'm very excited for what we're going to talk about today. Um, it's my it's my privilege to uh, to speak to you, and my goal just before we get started on the message, my goal for you is that you would be able to have a concise and connected understanding of the scriptures, in that you would see God's glory on every page, as it testifies about Christ and what He did in His work of redemption, and so. Uh, My desire for you is that this would not be just some sort of dead sermon with a lot of scripture verses, but that it would bring uh, that it would bring a uh, a knowledge of God, a knowledge of what Jesus Christ has done for you, and that that would become real to you. Uh, Many of you know that we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. If you've been here even more than once, you may notice that that's a unique aspect of our church. It's not unique to us, but among the popular expressions of the church today, the Old Testament gets uh, a little less attention than I think it should. Zephaniah is probably a book that I've never heard a sermon on. Um, I've done a few different uh, sermons on some of the minor prophets. One of them was Obadiah. I haven't spent a lot of time in the minor prophets. However, here in Zephaniah, we see an aspect of what we're celebrating in Advent very clearly, that God is at work in redeeming the sins of, of the people. And we see how Christ himself is the very redemption of Israel. There's a theme in the life of Israel that when she turns away from God, she is exiled. Today, we're going to see how Christ is not just the return from exile, but he's the full restoration of Israel and unto a a maturation of Israel, the true Israel, the church, to be a glorious expression of Christ's grace on, on the earth. And so we're going to look at this in the context of covenant history. Uh, Jesus Christ's coming when he comes at Christmas is not joyful only because he is God and it's good that God's with us. The coming of Christ in Christmas is joyful because of what he does, what he accomplishes, and his mission is integral to his coming. It is not a secondary aspect as we're going to see. Although it may seem unfamiliar to you, but Christmas is not disjointed from Easter. We, we tend to think Christmas is this wonderful, joyous time, peace on earth, there's snow on the ground, and we trivialize 
the intention of Christ's incarnation when we treat Christmas just as a season to be remembered, or, or Jesus comes as a baby and, and we see him uh, kind of like away on the manger. I particularly do not like that, uh, Carol, because no crying he makes is just frankly, unscriptural, but it's also missing the point. Christ comes in order to take on the suffering of his people. In Christ's incarnation, he identifies with his people. He doesn't just come as a God in in the midst of them in some abstract way. And that's what I hope to show you today, that Christmas is uniquely and intentionally connected to the cross. They're not two distinct ideas in the life of Christ. They're connected. They're one mission. And so we're going to see how Zephaniah shows us that. We're also going to look at John and the book of Hebrews. If you do have your Bibles, there are Bibles in the pew. Uh, I think it may help you to, the the verses will be on the slides, but it may help you uh, to pay attention if you're looking at it along. So we're going to begin with this idea of the bride of Yahweh, that is Israel, being understood as a bride that Yahweh has covenanted himself to. Many Christians are familiar with the uh, imagery of the church as the bride of Christ, but they are unfamiliar with this idea that it actually comes from and is all the way throughout the Old Testament scriptures, that Yahweh covenanted himself to the people of Israel and treated her as a bride. We're going to see how that is a major paradigm of this passage, that when Zephaniah tells the people of God to rejoice, he's telling them to rejoice as the daughter of Zion. We're going to look at how, although she was called to be a bride, Israel never was able to fulfill that role in her own strength. And indeed, her waywardness was seen as the prophets as spiritual adultery, or actually, if we want to not over-spiritualize it, simply adultery. Uh, we're going to see how this type of the bride and of God uh, in this solemn marriage is actually a greater reality than the marriages you or I know. Uh, That's a a very interesting idea. We're going to look at how Zephaniah promises there will be a remnant in the midst of God's judgment. God is going to come and uh, and do judgment against the nations and against Israel. Uh, The whole context of Zephaniah is a judgment both against Jerusalem and Judah, uh, Israel and Judah, and also the nations that surround her uh, for perverting their intended purpose on the earth. But God, in the midst of saying, I'm going to wipe everything out, promises that there would be a remnant who would remain, and that remnant would be uh, unto his glory and, and grace. It would be done in order that he would be demonstrated as both righteous and a justifier of the ungodly. We're going to move from there to see how Christ is the fulfillment of this promise that Zephaniah gives. Christ himself is the new temple, the true temple, which comes because of the defilement of Israel. And also Christ being the true atonement. He's not just the temple which blesses Israel, but also the atonement which is made in that temple, as we'll see when we connect it to John 1 and Hebrews 10. So if you um, if you do have your Bibles Uh, pay attention when we get to those portions of Scripture to the particular words that the the authors use to connect and to reference the other passages. So at the beginning of the new covenant or the old covenant scriptures uh, Israel as soon as she is taken up from Egypt there begins to be a language that God uses concerning her as his bride and this is not again it's not unique to the bride of Christ imagery in the New Testament it's actually all throughout Deuteronomy and Exodus and Yahweh is pulling uh, Israel out of Egypt. In Genesis, we see when God fashions Eve, the woman, for Adam, the man, he takes Adam, causes him to go through a deep sleep, and then opens up his rib and pulls out the, the side of Adam to fashion a bride. And here, God is intending to say that man and woman, as united in marriage, are one flesh. This is where we get the idea, the two shall become one, because in the creation, God had one and made two from it, creating them in a covenant bond that could not be broken, a bond established by God. And so at the end of the Exodus, when God is bringing the plagues, at the end of the leaving of Egypt, you may remember, God causes a great darkness to come over Egypt in the slaying of the firstborn. God rips apart Egypt in order to pull out his bride. And this is the beginning of 
the bride paradigm in the Old Testament. At, at this point, uh, he then gives her tons of gifts. But Yahweh is not apathetic concerning his bride. When you compare the other gods of the Old Covenant scriptures, there's uh, gods like ba- Baal, Marduk, Ashtaroth. These gods over and over again, have to be appeased. The Philistines, the Canaanites, they are performing sacrifices in order to gain the favor of their gods. But here we see Yahweh fighting for the bride. This is what we talked about two weeks ago in the in our time in Psalm 45 with the bridegroom warrior theme that God himself is fighting for his people. He's not causing the bride to have to gain his attention. He rather has set his zeal on uh, Israel and is then pursuing her. So he woos her with these gifts as they come up out of Egypt. He tears them apart. He tears Egypt apart, rather, pulls Israel out, and then blesses her as she goes up. She's adorned with the spoils of war. If you look at Exodus, you may remember when God tells Moses to tell the people to ask for gold, silver, jewelry from the other Egyptians. Uh, it then says that God caused great favor to come on the Hebrews, and they were receiving these gifts from their neighbors. This happens before the final plagues, and then as they go up, they receive even more. They receive cloth, special stones, uh, twine, thread, and these things are not explained at the beginning of the Exodus, but then we'll see them later when the tabernacle is made. God actually uh, gives an announcement to Moses to then say to the people of God, whoever has it in their heart to contribute to the sanctuary, then uh, let, him, let him give. And these very same pieces of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, thread, garments of cloth are used to adorn the temple. God allows his people to give up gifts as free will offerings, but he himself gave them those things. And so he begins to show how he's partnering with his bride in bringing about a glory in Israel, that is this temple or tabernacle in which he will meet. This tabernacle and temple is a very important thing to understand, and we don't have the time to fully unpack all of its meaning, but I just want to explain one or two aspects of the temple's function. Yahweh says that he will meet with Israel at this particular place in uh, in Jerusalem. At first, it's the tabernacle, which is movable, which follows Israel as she goes through the wilderness. And then eventually the tabernacle is done away with and the temple is established. But when God establishes the temple, he clearly explains that when Israel prays toward the temple, then he will hear. When Israel comes and offers sacrifices through the priests, then he will put off sin and be able to come and reside among his people. This temple is vital to the pattern of worship, repentance, and forgiveness for Israel. This temple is the most important thing in the entire country. In fact, it's much more important than even the king or an individual high priest. Without the temple, they cannot offer sacrifices to God and so so as to be blessed by his presence instead of destroyed by it. Another common theme throughout the Old Covenant scriptures. This temple was invested with meaning by God as intending to point forward to something greater, as we'll see But Yahweh designates the sons of Levi, one of the tribes of Israel. Levi was one of the children of of, uh, Jacob. And uh, Jacob's sons were, were then created into tribes. And God decides this worship is so important that he actually takes about one twelfth or one eleventh, depending on what you think about the various tribes and their sizes, uh, to be permanent worshipers before God. This was so important to God that it's like a tithe on the people. Um, They are dedicated to the service of the temple in order to cause the, the presence of God to be a blessing influence in Israel, not a curse. And their faithful service of Yahweh is vital to the life and health and blessing of Israel. This was the way that God established the temple and invested it with meaning. The temple does not have meaning apart from God's investment with meaning. It's not as if you or I could just get together some pieces of wood and overlay them with gold and silver and establish a place where God would be guaranteed to show up. 
He was the one who promised and invested it with meaning and gave them their explicit instructions of how to atone for sin, how to put it off, or how to make a way for the people to approach God. In the temple, the high priest sees God, and God's presence as it dwells over the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement when the when the priest uh, fills the room with incense, creating a glory cloud around the temple, is when Yahweh specifically says he will get he will meet with his people. And so the temple is not just the the place of atonement, it's also the place where Israel sees God, where they see him year by year as their cycle continues year after year. So this is the temple theme within the Old Covenant, and God establishes this temple as a gracious element for Israel. This isn't a burden, this is a means of God's grace. And so the sacrifices which made are only a putting off of the guilt. Uh, we'll look, when we get to Hebrews at the end of today's sermon, we'll see how this was never taking away sins. Some people get confused and think, well, Israel was saved by the slaying of bulls and goats, and we're saved by the atonement of Christ. No, this was merely a foreshadowing of what the reality would be, as we'll see later. So God promises Abraham at the beginning, before the Exodus, 430 years before the Exodus, that his descendants, his offspring, would be blessed, and that through them, they would bless all the nations of the earth. One of the ways in which God offers up this promise, or makes this promise, is through the imagery of the stars. Uh, God says, to Abraham to look into the heavens and to consider or to count or see if you could number the stars. Now, this is a little bit hard for us to understand. With modern light pollution, we have a very difficult time of thinking about the stars as anything glorious. I would, uh, I would uh, beg you at some point in your life, go to a national park in which there's no light pollution or, you know, another state out in the west of the United States or somewhere. Maybe you have to go to Brazil, although they have modern cities and I'm sure it's quite bad there. Maybe Rick can uh, take you deep into the Amazon forests. Uh, there is no ability for you or I to consider the stars in Dayton, Ohio because of how much light pollution there is. On a clear day, especially in the winter, you may see about 30 large stars. But if you've ever been in the country at night, you understand that those are just the brightest ones, and there are millions and billions and numbers that are beyond my understanding, uh, quintillions, no nillions, all you math fanatics can take us out there when we start using numbers to talk about numbers like 10 to the 32nd power. These are amazing numbers of stars, and Abraham is told that his descendants would be like the stars. Certainly, they are many lights of the world, but also they are great in number. Abraham is told that they would be multiplied, that they would be blessed. God would be the one bringing about the multiplication of his offspring. And so Abraham is told to consider the stars, but when we get to Zephaniah, the indictment against Israel is that she herself is bowing down to the stars. In Zephaniah 1, it says that they go up onto the rooftops of their buildings, places that should be for the worship of Yahweh, and they bow down before the stars. They begin to, as Paul says in Romans 1, worship the created thing instead of the creator. Israel is beginning to be defiled. This continues through the theme of Zephaniah 1. Not only is her priesthood defiled, but also her kings are defiled. In Zephaniah 1, it says that the kings and the princes wish to dress themselves up like the, the rulers of the other nations. The kings of Israel were commanded by God to write a copy of the law and read it and that law would be their instruction manual for the setting up and establishing of cultural justice, military warfare against the other nations. And that law would be the way that they rule. When Zephaniah says that they're dressing themselves up like the other kings, we see that they're trying to take on the, the means of rulership, the way in which these other rules of the other nations rule those countries. And we see how dangerous this is, especially when we see the rulers in the various nations. The ones that we see in scripture are those kings which have to be defeated. Pharaoh in Egypt sets himself up as a god 
over the Egyptians. He, he declares himself to be identified with the sun god, Ra. Later, when we see in Daniel, this is, uh, this is before Zephaniah, but we see Nebuchadnezzar establish himself, and God actually has to come and humble him. And so all of the kings of the other nations have a theme in which they, as Psalm 2 says, are warring against the kingship of the Son of God. And so Israel is going after that. David was a man after God's own heart, but by the time Zephaniah gets around, David's descendants down the years have become polluted. They've become uh, tyrants. They've become authoritarians. And so they're ruling and oppressing Israel with, with harsh justice, no justice at all. Not only is the priesthood and the kingship or the, the, the priest, uh, kingly class of Israel defiled, but their people are actually also defiled. In Zephaniah 1, it says that the people of, of Jerusalem, the men of Jerusalem, are slack, and they say that there's no good following the Lord, and, and there's no evil following or not following the Lord. They have lost a sense of their holy vocation. God establishes the people of Israel, sends them into the land, gives them a promised land, and then calls them to work as unto him, to take the land and to use it for his glory and to enjoy its blessings. But here, the people, the men of Jerusalem are beginning to say to themselves in a quote from Zephaniah 1 uh, verses tw- verse 12, that there's no good or evil in following after God. It doesn't matter whether we serve God or not. It doesn't matter whether we use the things that he's given us, these houses and vineyards and cisterns and threshing floors unto his glory, or we use them for our own pleasure. And we'll see that that misuse actually brings about their removal from Israel. Israel's sin is a spiritual adultery. In her going after the other gods, in her corrupting her culture, in allowing the priesthood to go and worship the stars and the kings to desire to become like the tyrants of the other nations around them and the men to lose sight of a holy vocation before God, Israel commits as the bride of Yahweh adultery. This is not a spiritualized understanding. This is actually a greater reality than the reality that you or I know. I alluded to this earlier, but the reason that God allows for man and woman to have marriage, that is, you and I, as we live and and move in, in human bodies, the reason we can get married, the reason we know of people who get married, is to provide many examples or pointers to the marriage between Christ and his bride. It's not as if Christ, or it's not as if God's word uses that metaphor in order to convey some meaning, and it's a bad metaphor. It's actually the case that that is the reality, and we, in our marriages today, in the marriages that we know and see around us, are metaphors of that marriage. And so Israel's rejection of the pure worship of Yahweh is no small thing. It is a great and mighty thing, considering how, how invested Yahweh is in this marriage to Israel, in treating her like a bride, in in, uh, in his faithfulness to her. She has broken covenant with Yahweh, and therefore we know from the law that this covenant is executed by death, as in this covenant which she has broken is terminated in the death of the adulterous party. God's hatred of the evil and uh, of both Israel and the other nations is so great that he compares it to the wiping away of the earth. If you look in Zephaniah 1 at the beginning, uh, I believe that's actually Zephaniah 2. Nope, Zephaniah 1, uh, verses 2 through 6, God actually uses the language that's very evocative of Noah when God was sorry that man had been, uh, that man had been made and that man was continually dwelling on evil, that, that mankind totally had been corrupted and the thoughts and intentions of their heart were only simply murder, jealousy, stealing, greed, theft, uh, violence, and God is sorry that he, he makes makes man, and so declares to wipe away the earth. This is the exact same language, the language that theologians call decreation language. And this language shows up not only in the creation, but also in bringing Israel into the promised land. Uh, Her sin is so great that she actually reverses the blessings that God bestows upon uh, the, the promised land. God says to Israel in, uh, in bringing her into the land that he's going to get, give her great gifts, houses that they did not build, vineyards that they did not plant, cisterns and wells that they did not dig, vine presses that they didn't establish. And here, 
God's judgment against Israel actually is an undoing of all those blessings because she herself has broken the covenant. So we have to see Zephaniah's promise in the theme of covenant in order to see how glorious it is that the uh, fulfillment is made before our eyes. In this context, our reading is actually quite startling. Uh, you know, we at the beginning of our service today, we sung happy songs and we sung joyful songs because that's what we are about to get to is the joy. But when you put Zephaniah 3 in the context of Zephaniah 1 and 2, that God will wipe away the nations and God will undo the blessings he gave to Israel because of the sin, which is so great, Zephaniah 3 is actually quite startling. Zephaniah 3, with the promise to the people of God to rejoice, makes no sense. It's completely unthinkable that at this point, the prophet would then turn from stunning and fiery condemnation and indictment to language that is celebratory and joyful and wonderful and, and, and uh, happy. It, it, it makes no sense at all, and yet it makes perfect sense when seen in its fulfillment. But the question must be, before we move forward, why should Israel rejoice? God has promised judgment, and he will surely bring about that judgment, but why should she rejoice? Well, one of the reasons that she would rejoice is that God promises to leave a remnant in the midst of this judgment. In the midst of the judgment, God remembers mercy. This is how God works throughout all of the scriptures. You may remember back to Sodom and Gomorrah, the most wicked city at at work, except for Jerusalem, uh, in the Old Covenant scriptures. It says that when the angels show up who were coming to visit Lot, that the men of the city of Sodom pounded on the door. They beat down the door of Lot's house to try to get these angels to come out so that they would sodomize them. That is what the word sodomy means. Uh, That's where it derives from. The practice of those wicked men in that city was to have natural relations between men, something that's described by God as an abomination, something that comes because of the worship of the creature and not the creator. These men had so given themselves over to the wickedness of their lust that they were pursuing after holy men in order to know them, as it says in the account. And so God is going to wipe out Sodom. But even in the midst of wiping out Sodom, he has mercy on Lot and his children. Now, there are some bad things that happen with Lot, but the point is to see that Abraham is petitioning God, he's interceding with God to not wipe away the righteous with along with the guilty. Even in the most stark example of judgment in the Old Testament, there are at least a few people who are left as a remnant. Now, here, Israel's been corrupted. Her priesthood is worthless. Her kings are tyrants. Her men are slack and lazy. But even so, God will provide a remnant. And that's exactly what he uh, prophesies by the mouth of Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3.11, On that day you shall not be put to, to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. God considers the adultery of Israel not just in the terms of bride and bridegroom, but also king and uh, servants. That is, the rebellion against Yahweh is a throwing off of his kingship on the land. For I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. He's saying that he's going to wipe away the priesthood of Israel because they continue to follow after the other gods. Verse 12 is, is the reason for the rejoicing at first, that Israel is told to rejoice with. He says, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Verse 13, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Students of the gospel may remember when Christ says to Nathanael, behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's a pointer. It's, a, it's supposed to give the reader a sense of what's going on through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is ultimately this fulfillment. This is where we come to see it. The prophet tells the daughter of Zion to rejoice. Verse, verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The reason why they are told to rejoice is because God will, although every person in Israel is morally culpable of guilt, God will preserve for himself a remnant who he will justify and sanctify. 
Again, we see this theme of the warrior bridegroom who slays those who harass his bride. In Psalm 45, we saw how the warrior, who is Christ typified in the psalm, executes justice for those Uh, for his bride and slays those who pester her or harass her. This same exact theme is showing up. But here, it's not the other nations which are harassing the people of God, but rather, in in these verses, people of Israel harassing a lowly, humble remnant. There's a mixture within Israel. She's called to be pure and undefiled, just like the Levitical purity laws that before coming before God, they are to be purified, they're to be washed. And Israel as a nation was to live before God. But what's happened here is Israel is schizophrenic. It's Israel is Jekyll and Hyde. She herself is filled with those who are not worshipers of Yahweh by faith, but also worshipers of the other gods who are pursuing their own interests. And so God says to Israel, I will judge those who need judgment, but I will preserve a remnant. And that is the rejoicing that she is supposed to have. Now, this rejoicing does not come about by their own effort, nor does it come about by her own understanding of what's going to happen, but rather God explains why she should rejoice, because there will be a remnant and because there will be a great salvation which he himself will perform a mighty outstretched hand when he himself comes into their midst. And this is where we join up with the new covenant. This prophecy is always pointing forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we'll begin to see it made manifest. When God comes near, this is the beginning of the time of restoration of the people of Israel. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now here, you must understand these words. This is not the judgment or the condemnation as we know of Satan. That is, Satan goes around like a roaring lion, or Satan, the adversary of the people of God, the one who slanders. Here, the judgments are not made by Satan. They're not even made by the other nations. The judgment that Zephaniah speaks of in verse 15 is the very same judgments in chapters 1 and 2, which are spoken by God. God is taking away his own judgment against the people of Israel, not by dismissing it, but by satisfying it. He has cleared away your enemies, and those enemies are not just the other nations, but also the duplicitous members of Israel herself. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall, shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Instead of being slack like the people of the men of Jerusalem, these Israelites are told, your hands are going to be strengthened again. There will be a purpose for your work. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. If that's not the most explicit uh, bridal imagery in Zephaniah, I don't know what would be. Quieting someone with their love is, is almost you know, a, a view of love that could only be defined as eros. This is a love that God will give to his people. He will treat them tenderly, and all they deserve is harsh judgment. He will exalt over you with loud singing is not done by a father over his son, but it is done, uh, a, a father over his son, but it is done by a man over his bride. In fact, the very first song that we see in the scriptures, you would assume is about God. But the very first song that we see in the scriptures is spoken by Adam over Eve. And that song that he sings over her is uh, basically where she gets her name. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, we're going to delve into a dad joke real quick. But the reason why she's called woman is because Adam, captivated by her beauty, moves in song and declares, whoa, man. Uh, The point being that song in the scripture initially is bridal. It's, It's evocative of love. It's a demonstration of extreme joy, joy that's not held in friendship, but rather joy that's held in the marriage bed. And so Yahweh here is going to restore a faithful bride. God does not simply overlook the sins of Israel's adultery, but rather pays for them himself. So the question is, how does she escape the judgment? The way that she escapes the judgment is by someone else taking it for her. Christ is the true temple in the fact that the Lord's arrival in the midst of his people in Zephaniah is seen to be the blessed effect of the people. Going back real quick to verse 15, the Lord has taken away your judgments. Why? The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. 
God's coming into the midst of his people is the very beginning of the removal of the judgments on her. And seeing this in the light of covenant gives us a great uh, helpful aspect to John 1. Here we see, we see the fulfillment of Christ coming as uh, the one who's the promise keeper. The rejoicing that's commanded at the heralding of Christ's arrival in Jerusalem by the angels, which are declaring to the shepherds, is a declaration of uh, peace or the ending of warfare, and that's done at the revelation of Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. When the angels announce this, they declare it as peace to those who are favored by God. It's not just peace, as we said, as I said two weeks ago, it's not just peace among all the world, right? We, we've kind of hijacked that out of the Christian message or the, the message of Christmas that we'd say peace to the world, but rather the angels said peace to those with whom he's well pleased. It's not just a, a universal peace which comes at Christmas, but rather a specific peace, a peace that's given to those who are specifically guilty, not just a general peace that's open to all mankind, although it will be expanded to that. Christ's arrival was a declaration of peace to Jerusalem, and this is the same theme that Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The reason why is because there is God come in the flesh into her midst. Christ's presence does not have an abstract mechanism of blessing. It's not that Christ, when he comes, is just good to be around. Think about this closely. When Christ comes, when the angels announce that the peace is come and her warfare is being ended, it's being ended because there's no longer any more judgments. It's not that Christ just has a spiritual blessing effect just by being around. It's that he comes to do something. He comes near to Israel in their midst to be the very one through whom her guilt will be removed permanently. He doesn't just come to visit as if he's visiting a friend. He comes with a mission. He's not visiting just to bless in an abstract way, but in a specific way. Israel's priesthood, as we saw, which was very important, has become so defiled that she is unable to put off any more guilt. Israel's priesthood has com become completely corrupted, and Yahweh declares to Israel that the priesthood sacrifices are no longer helping things. In fact, he actually tells them at one point to end this. This is established at the very beginning of the foundation of the temple. In When Solomon dedicates the temple, Yahweh provides a warning saying that if the priesthood should turn away, then he would completely wipe them out and undo all of the glory that he had invested in the temple. This is especially important to notice. Israel's mechanism of being justified or atoned before God has been removed. Uh, I think justified is the wrong word there, but having being able to have God's presence uh, in her midst is done away with. Not only is the priesthood defiled, but also God says that the gold and silver of Israel would be useless. And that gold and silver has to be connected back to the Exodus. That's where Israel got her gold and silver. And what it was used for, it was used for the temple walls and the temple instruments of worship. What, is, what, it, what God is saying is that Israel has become so spiritually defiled that she cannot even approach God any longer. At the introduction of John's gospel in John chapter 1, then we see Jesus's word, uh, Jesus's coming as so important. Uh, here we need to go to the Young's literal. You can look in the ESV, but the ESV does not use this word. Uh, the, the reason why is because uh, it doesn't make much sense in English, but John 1, 14, and the word, that is the word of God, the Logos of God, became flesh and did tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the tabernacling verb here is not a verb that you or I use. We don't often speak of tabernacling, uh, really because this is not something we can do. What, what it means in the Greek is literally to pitch a tent. And this is surely evocative of Moses's tabernacle. It says that when Moses would wish to come before God from time to time, he would pitch a tent away from the camp. And there he would meet with God and Joshua along with him and anyone in Israel who wished to inquire of the Lord. And in the temple is where the Israelites saw glory. And so Jesus comes in order to pitch a tent and to be flesh among us and to reveal the glory of God in Israel. And so this tabernacle theme is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus comes because the temple of Israel is no longer helpful. 
Christ is the true temple who opens up through his sacrifice a way by which you and I may come into the presence of God. He not only satisfies the covenant obligations and needs of the people of Israel, but also it's expanded to all of the church, which is the true Israel. In and through Christ, he causes us to become pure enough in order to see the glory of God. John says that we saw the glory of God in Christ, and Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says that only the pure in heart shall see God. Israel's become so blind in her sin that she can't see him, and yet John says that at the coming of Christ, we behold the glory of God. Glory is of the only Son of the Father. And so Christ is not just the true temple, the one who makes a way for Israel to again come before God's presence, but he goes beyond that. He actually is a greater fulfillment. Earlier, the prophet himself in Zephaniah shows a small glimpse of how this is going to be accomplished. In Zephaniah 1, verse 7, he says, Be silent before the Lord God. Now, this is kind of funny, I think, because our verse today was rejoice. But here he says, Be silent, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated his guest. The Lord himself has prepared a sacrifice and is consecrating those who are going to come and partake in that meal of the sacrifice. Uh, Something that's a little bit helpful in terms of background is that the priests of Israel would be fed by the sacrifices which uh, took place in the tabernacle or the temple. They, They got their very life sustenance from the faithful worship of Israel and the faithful meeting of God with his people through that sacrifice of atonement. Here Zephaniah has said, instead of Israel bringing a day of atonement sacrifice in order that she would be able to come before God, the Lord himself is preparing a sacrifice. And we'll see in just a moment how it is the Lord himself who is sacrificed. John's phrase, the word became flesh, that is, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is usually seen in an ontological capacity, that is, the divine is taking on humanity in order to bridge the gap between God and man. And this certainly is in view. Uh, if you're confused by the word ontology, it, sim- it simply means a study of the nature of being. That is, God is here, And mankind is lowly. And so many times we hear John say that the word became flesh in order to unify that gap between God and man in in a philosophical context. But I think that's only a limited view of what goes on, and it's not the full view. It simply means that God is up here, and he's a class that we can never attain to. And men are down here, and we're lowly. And so Christ's incarnation is him bridging that gap. But it's a much more important gap that Christ bridges when it says that he became flesh. I think that that is a limitation of what John intends, especially in the light of the temple language that's used. The reason that Jesus Christ becomes flesh is not just to express solidarity with his creation, that is, those uh, through... uh, Paul in Colossians says that Christ was the one through whom the world was made, all things were made, as we say in the creeds. Christ not only expresses solidarity with his image bearers, but he himself comes to identify with them totally. Many of us think that the incarnation, the celebration of Christmas is wonderful because God just comes to be among us. But we see here that Christ becomes flesh in order to identify not only with the people, but also with their sins. If Christ in his coming only identifies with people in a philosophical way, or that is, in a way that relates to us as being humans, then it leaves out a drastic need that we have, because we, just like Israel, have this guilt. Even though Israel is told she'll be pardoned, she doesn't have a way of removing the guilt. And here, we have this same need for both atonement and guilt removal. The reason that the word becomes flesh is that Christ becomes killable. You can sacrifice flesh. You can kill flesh. This is a much greater view of the incarnation than I think just understanding some existential difference being resolved. Christ comes in order to die, essentially. And this is not abstract from Christmas. This is intended with Christmas. He takes upon himself the guilt that is hers. And we know from the law that the punishment of adultery is death. And so the only way that Yahweh can purify his bride in this covenant which has now been defiled by her is order for that covenant to be rendered through the proper means that the law establishes, which the law, of course, is the demonstration of God's will and character, according to Psalm 119. 
And so God himself punishes his son and ends the unfaithful marriage in order to establish another. This aspect of Christ's incarnation, I think, harmonizes with the Hebrew writer in a more appropriate way. If we don't understand Christ coming in the flesh, and we don't see Zephaniah speaking that God himself has prepared a sacrifice, then we miss some of the glory that the Hebrew writer says. And this is where I would have loved to have it be part of the reading, but unfortunately that would have given away the show. So Hebrews 10, if you want to turn in your Bible, we're going to have another mini reading. Hebrews 10, it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Here, this is, again, evocative of the time in Israel where she had become defiled. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come, in, come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And then verse 10 is where we see the full fulfillment of Zephaniah 1 verse 7. And by that will, that is God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God, only, God not only prepares a sacrifice, but he also sanctifies his guests in order that they may eat with him. Here we see Christ not only as the true temple, the one who is able to bring Israel wayward back to a place of unification with God, but also Christ himself is the true atoning sacrifice. He's the one who finally does it. Christ is the true and final atonement, and this true and final atonement is not the removal or the setting aside of God's justice, but rather it is the establishing of God's justice. In Ezekiel 18.20, we read that the soul which sins shall die. And here we see that when Christ makes an atonement in Hebrews 10, the Hebrew writer identifies it as sanctifying us. So which is it? Should we die or should Christ die? in order to sanctify us. And here the union with Christ is so vital. Christ dies in our stead. And according to Paul in Romans, we die with him. God does not set aside his justice. The, the punishment of sin is still death. Many Christians are confused about this. Why, they wonder, why do, why do men still experience a bodily death if Christ has defeated death in the resurrection? Well, the reason is, is that because God does not set aside his justice. But God's understanding of death is not limited, it's total. When he says the soul that sins shall die, he means to be put away, to be done with forever. And here we see, through the doctrine of baptism, how we escape that judgment completely. We're not only unified with Christ in the sacrifice, we're also unified with Christ according to the resurrection. Paul says that through baptism, we have been joined with Christ in his death in order that we would be sanctified and walk in newness of life. There's a resurrection that happens, and that resurrection is because we're seen by God to be with Christ. And of course, being with God is impossible if God doesn't come near us to be with us first. That's what Christmas is all about. And that's why we prepare for it in Advent, is to take notice of all the wonderful facets of the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not that God comes to you and dies on a cross in order to offer you the choice of forgiveness versus uh, unforgiveness and, and a lack of reconciliation, but he himself comes and makes the reconciliation with his people. He doesn't rely on Israel to clean up her act before he comes and removes her guilt. Christ's death and resurrection is God's final answer to the waywardness of his bride. To be sure, the bride of Christ is pure and spotless and glorious and holy. But at this point in the redemptive history, we see that Israel is just defiled. The reason why Christ dies is because he takes her death in her stead, in her place. Now by the Spirit, the bride, of course, is being matured and glorified. Christ, when he leaves, again gives another gift to his bride, and that gift is the Spirit which is typified by the gold and the silver which adorned the temple. Now, God in Christ has sent the Spirit, and that Spirit is now bringing about the gifts of God, which could be compared with the instruments of the temple. Through Christ, we have been redeemed and made holy. Uh, the, the Reformed doctrine of 
saints yet sinners, uh, sometimes is not held in balance. Some of us think that because we have an ongoing problem with obeying God's will for our lives, that is, not sinning, uh, we, we become convinced that we actually are still in need of some great salvation that, uh, that God has to do. And some of us uh, misunderstand the doctrine of, of the death of Christians, that is a personal eschatology, and we think that when we die, we will finally be sanctified. But according to the New Testament, the putting off of sins is accomplished at the cross and at the resurrection, not at our thanatos, our, our bodily death. So here we see a great need for us to reconcile how can I be righteous before God and yet still see so much sin in my life. The way to reconcile it is, again, to focus on the cross, to focus on the resurrection which you've been brought into by baptism if you are a believer, if you're a Christian. And so this understanding of Christ coming to fulfill the covenant needs the covenant obligation, the covenant debt of Israel is actually greater than simply Christ coming at Christmas to provide a personal salvation. Of course, a personal salvation is in view, but it's greater than that in a great way. According to the will of God, we have been sanctified and set apart by Christ. And as Zephaniah foretold, we have been sanctified in order to come to the table. Christ is not just the temple and not just the atonement, but he's the bread of life, the bread which came down from heaven. The bread which he said in John 6, you must eat, and also the blood which you must drink in order to have fellowship with him. And that's what we do when we take communion before the Lord. It's a celebration in Christ's death, and it's a celebration over what would normally be a very sad and macabre thing. The death of God in Christ is not a thing that we would normally celebrate except for what it accomplishes. This is why I think it's so important to see the language of Scripture as showing the atonement and showing how rich and beautiful and glorious it is. So let's close. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the wonderful glory that you have shown us in your Scripture. God, I pray that you would fill our minds with your word, that we would be able to see the beautiful tapestry that you've created throughout history and throughout your writers moved by your spirit, which faithfully wrote down those things which you have given to us for our good, for our salvation. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us as strangers and aliens, but that you reconciled and redeemed your people, that that you did bring a return from our spiritual exile. And Lord, not only that, you also made a way for us to come before you when we were defiled and far from you. But God, even beyond all that, you yourself, in the person of Christ, you've taken away our guilt and our shame. And you've not only done that, but you've sanctified us and are continuing to do so. God, we ask you that you would give us a great and mighty sense of your presence at this wonderful celebratory meal. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.